Welcome to Humans First, a place where we critique and reimagine the traditional ways that many businesses operate. Our intention is to help shift your mindset toward prioritizing a deeper understanding of the people your company serves. Join us at the intersection of design thinking and business strategy. On today's episode, host Andy Van Fleet is joined by special guest Timothy Embritson, the Global VP of Experience Design at IKEA. We are excited to dive deep into what it takes to scale a design team from 10 to 300 people in a matter of a few years and what it takes to join that team. I'm just so excited to welcome my next guest, Timothy Embritson, a dear friend of mine who we've worked together in the past. And then I've had the privilege of watching your career just take off. And what you're doing now is really incredible. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're up to now and um, and where you're working right now. Thank you, Andy. And thank you for the invitation. Super excited to have the opportunity to share some some of the perspectives of the work that I've been doing over the last several years as well. I'm currently a VP of Experience Design at Inker Group, which is IKEA's largest franchisee. Uh, so I live and work in Malmö, Sweden, and have been here for about three years um, and moved here three years ago from the Midwest. I grew up and lived in the Midwest in Iowa and then Chicago and Minneapolis for over 10 years. So it was a a big departure and a big shift to um, move out of the U.S. and and work in a, a global organization as well. What I do day to day, I lead the global experience design team at IKEA, and there's nearly 300 of us across the world. So we have offices in um, three offices in Europe, in Malmo, Amsterdam, Madrid, as well as an office in Philadelphia and Shanghai. And we are now starting to build up um, an office and practice in India as well. So we're adding another global location. I have the extreme pleasure of leading a team of extremely talented people across a variety of design disciplines ranging from products, product UX design, visual interaction design, service design, strategic design, data, content design, content strategy. We have design and research ops. We have a design system team, of course, UX and design researchers. And then we're also building what we call inclusive design equity and accessibility teams as well. I joined the organization three years ago, but we are really two years into our journey of building the, the team. The first year, uh, I spent really restructuring and defining the organizational structure that, we're, that we've spent the last two years building. So two years ago, there were around 10 of us, and um, now there are close to 300 across the world. It has been a really wild, uh, exciting, sometimes frustrating, sometimes very difficult ride to grow, um, grow and scale uh, an in-house internal design team at that pace because the large majority of those 300 people really joined in the last year and a half. So we have hired at a pace that is, um, I'm not quite sure how we did it, but it's really, it's, it's been a, a, a really interesting opportunity where I've um, had to rethink leadership, rethink hiring multiple times um, and rethink approaches to how we, how we, hire at that scale. And hiring is just one part of what you have to do. Uh, once you hire, you have to deliver 
a decent onboarding experience, but then you also have to ensure that you have the prerequisites and the foundations in the organization to retain those folks. And I'm proud to say that we have very high retention rates in the organization as well, which I'm super grateful for the choices that all 300 of those folks made to join. I'm even more grateful for the choice they make every single day to continue to stay in the organization. That's incredible to hear it going from 10 to 300 in that short of time is it just really is mind boggling. And I mean, congratulations, number one, for being able to accomplish that. I'm just curious, like, how did the strategy come to be where somebody at Ikea says, okay, this is what we need to build and this is why we need to do it. And it would be very interesting to know, like, how, how did that come about? So at Ikea, we're undergoing the biggest digital transformation in our almost 80-year history with the goal of delivering human-centric technology to the many people. A cornerstone to this transformation and key to achieving human-centric technology is the experience design team. So it was recognized early in the digital transformation that we needed a design capability in order to meet our growth goals and meet our strategic goals. In the first year, working really closely with our then chief digital officer, taking the design org structure as it was at the time and completely changing that was the first step. So when I joined, we had a model that essentially had 60 or so designers reporting into one manager. It was an re internal resource pool, if okay. you will. Yep. That can work, certainly, but it doesn't bring design into the organization to drive innovation and business at the fullest potential possible. Right, right. So there was early support and early adoption from our then chief digital officer, who we then secured approval from our CEO to build the experience design capability with the full design suite of competences that we have today, ranging um, from across the entire product lifecycle. So we design experiences and features that will launch tomorrow on ikea.com and in our app. But we also explore future value propositions through experience design and design research to figure out where IKEA may be in the future and how we can meet many more of the customers around the world. So there was early support for the design organization. And I'll go out on a limb and say I'm not entirely sure all of those leaders knew exactly what they mm. were approving. Right. But I'm grateful for the trust that the uh, IKEA leadership placed in me and in the future potential of this organization, knowing that there hadn't been an experienced design capability in-house of this scale. There was a an extreme amount of trust given to me and this organization with the expectation that we deliver results on the heavy investment that that the organization is making towards design. That's incredible. I want to get into like the some of the the perspectives that you uh, have about building world class teams because that's really the the gist of this podcast is building you know the incredible teams that you have and the strategies that you have behind that. I'm really curious to see you know as you're going from a, a group of ten to three hundred the hiring strategies that you employ and what you look for in some um, top talent. I know that. Your team is not just UX, um, it's a, a wide variety of skill sets, but some of the strategies that you have and like, what are some things that you um, are adamant about that they, that they have to bring to the table? That's a really great question. One of the top things that I look for is the ability to be proactive. 
designers who can identify opportunities, but then also take the steps to make movements on those opportunities, regardless of what level you are, or if you have, you know, this is month one of your journey in your, into your design career, or you have 25 years. The ability to be proactive at every level is super important. And it's very important when you also work in large companies. There are seemingly endless opportunities. And sometimes, um, not just designers earlier in their career, but even designers who have had decades, we sometimes want these opportunities to be handed to us. The brief fully filled out, all of the questions answered, the deadline clear. Um, and that's just not how many businesses can afford to operate any right. longer. The pace at which, at which business is moving, the pace at which customer expert expectations are shifting requires us as stewards of the business to ensure that we're finding those opportunities and we're being super proactive and bringing those to life. So pro being proactive is one of the top things that I look for. Another thing that I look for is empathy. And this may sound like, uh, yeah, of course, well, you look for people who can be empathetic right. with, uh, but there's two lenses to this. And the second lens is one that I don't hear talked a lot about in the design community. So of course we have to build empathy with the end user experience, whether that end user is, you know, customers or employees, but I look for people who can have empathy for the organization and the people that make up an organization, especially if you're building a design capability from scratch. The organization may not know how to engage with designers. Their reference for design might be design this and make this look pretty for me. Mm, right. And that can be very off-putting to a designer. But if you rather shift that to have empathy with that individual to say, hmm, this is their current understanding. How can I take this and build upon this and create a future advocate for a more comprehensive approach to design? So empathy, of course, but the most important thing is to have empathy with the organization and the people that make up that organization to ensure that you're meeting them where they're at and not judging them for not understanding design. I find myself in this trap often as well. Yeah. Um, and it can be really hard when you've spent years advocating and pushing for the value of design and yet again you find yourself in a conversation of like, well don't you just des design this screen can't you just make it look pretty right like, oh come on again right like do i really have to fight this yep but that is our job mm. that is our job especially if you choose to join organizations that don't have the highest design maturity and most organizations don't have the highest design maturity so empathy but empathy for the organization and the people that make up that uh, make up the organization. Those are two of the top skills that I look for um, when hiring people at any level. That's amazing. So I think maybe diving deeper into a couple of those those two items. When do you get the sense that this person is proactive? I mean, they're going through the interview process, and um, are there things that they, that you're looking for that indicate that they're proactive? I assume that there are some things that they're key indicators that you look for. And then I'd love to learn more about like, how do you probe at them from an empathetic standpoint? I think it's, you can kind of get the sense that a person has empathy and that they have a lot of humility. But when you map that to what you shared, which I think is brilliant about having empathy for the organization and meeting people where they're at, 
um, that's another layer that you're that you're of discovery that you're looking for. And so maybe talk through like some of the things that you do there. Determining if someone is proactive, I mean, that's a very can be a very difficult skill to suss out <laughs> and to figure right. out if someone's bringing that to the table. There are a couple of key things that I look at, and when someone's presenting a case study or you know a project, or if it's a more senior leader, right, teams that they've built or teams that they've led, you know, I start to ask questions around who asked you to do this. Did someone come to you and say, I need you to do X or I need you to do Y? So that's one of the easiest questions that I ask because then if they say, oh, yeah, my manager came to me and asked me to do X, Y, or Z, that maybe indicates maybe not so proactive. Or if they say, oh, yeah, no, no one, you know, no one saw this opportunity. I, you know, I saw how to connect the dots from A to B to Z and I just started doing it. And then eventually I, you know, uh, I brought it to my manager, but simply asking who asked you to do this mm. is a really simple question that you can start to scratch the surface of being proactive. So an example, no one asked me to restructure the organization that I was just hired to lead. Um, but it was clear to me that what I was being asked to do, build a best in class design organization, we needed a different structure. But it can be as simple as seeing an opportunity within an app um, and proactively doing some research. A tip that I would provide for people in an interview process is to start to show how you're being proactive, stating if you've come up with a, a strategy or a movement or initiative on your own, where you've identified an opportunity and you're, and you're working with business partners or partners, and then anchoring that and then um, moving that through an organization. That's a great tip to provide to people that are designers at any level. And what you just shared really resonates with me. It feels like that space of being proactive is an open space for somebody to grab. Oftentimes it feels like it's, it's there. And if you want to grab that and move it forward, not very often are people upset about that you did that. If somebody told you to go do that, then it's the antithesis of being proactive. I think about that too, is like they actually went obviously into the space where it's kind of uncomfortable and they don't know if this is the right thing to do or not. Being proactive inherently requires stepping into bravery and vulnerability as well, because you don't know if the solution that you can so clearly see needs to happen will be um, accepted or if people will say, oh, no, that's not what I asked you to do. I asked you to do this. So really understanding that though it's a really brave thing to do to lean into being proactive um, is important as well. That's so true. I've often thought about um, doing a, a podcast on the imposter syndrome. I've been doing this for 25 years. You've been doing it for 15 to 20 years as a, as a designer. Lots of history, lots of lessons learned there. But still, I know for me, stepping into a space that I haven't worked before or in a different domain, I, f I, I know that I've got the confidence to walk into that space and say I can you know, use my past experiences to help here. But there's, but there's still this moment of like, but am I qualified to do this? Like there's this moment of like, am I the right person? And this imposter syndrome starts to kind of sit on your shoulder. And on the other shoulder is like, yes, you have done all of this type of work before. It's just in a different domain or it's a level up or you're doing something a little bit different. But using the past experiences that you have, you, you know, it's going to lead to successful outcomes. Bringing it back to your experiences, too, and the team that you're building. Do you talk about that openly with your team is in terms of 
the innovative solutions that are required to, to come up to move, you know, to move a, a team forward and an organization forward is oftentimes really scary in that regard. Yeah, in, in my team, we talk a lot about bravery and vulnerability, and it's important always. It's even more important when you're working in an organization going through a transformation and you're building a capability from scratch. And in some cases, building parts of a design organization from scratch that nobody asked for. And so therefore, nobody knows what to do with, right? Right. Um, and if you join an organization, if you join that team from an organization that was much more mature, where you had a clear roadmap and um, your next deliverable was clear, and all of a sudden, you know, you're excited to join this new company, maybe a company that you wanted to work for for a very long time, maybe a company that you've respected and loved as a customer. Um, and you step into these spaces and there is no roadmap and there is no one asking you to do A, B, or C. They can throw you off your game. Mm. And so we have a lot of conversations um, around what that experience is and that exp the, the fact that that experience is normal um, and the fact that that experience can be both incredibly energizing and incredibly frustrating at the same time. And there, right. there, there can be a meeting that you step out of, you're like, all oh, right, I've got it figured out. And the next meeting you're like, I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> and that can happen within the time span of, you know, a few minutes. Right. Um, so those are a lot of the conversations that I've had with the, with at many levels and layers of the team that have joined, because I experienced that myself as well. All right. Um, leading a team and asking people to join into an organization, especially parts of an or of the design organization where, People don't really know what to do with that part of the organization. Although I know we need it and I know the organization will see the need for it soon. It's a big thing to ask people to join that organization and um, ask them to extend uh, an incredible amount of trust in this vision that you've set forward. Um, so the imposter syndrome is at play all of the time. Earlier this afternoon, I met with a cohort of folks who joined a few months ago, and my messages were, were very much around what we're talking about, mm. um, sharing my experiences, normalizing some of the experiences that I know that they're going through. And several of the people in that conversation said, thank you for sharing this. I thought it was just me, or I thought I was just experiencing this. And so it is. It can feel very lonely sometimes. And so um, as a leader of a team, you have to be brave and you have to step into vulnerability to share your experiences to make sure that others can connect their experience to that, to realize that they're not alone and, and um, there is support. That's amazing. It's like, okay, I'm not the only one that kind of feels this way from a leadership standpoint. I mean, just having this conversation with you makes... Um, makes that uh, that space feel less scary, you know. So when you're yeah. evaluating portfolios and uh, design talent, what are some of the things that you look for from those candidates that you're evaluating? I do require a portfolio, and I require a portfolio at, at any level. And so obviously the requirements are a bit different depending on the level. Within the design team, we're really looking at craft quality. So how do they understand the various tools and methodologies available, whether it's research or service design or content design? Um, what is their understanding and their level of craft? I'm also very much looking for a connection to the business opportunity or the business problem, ideally with what metrics that has moved. 
in an organization. Design and business has to be much more coupled. And I think this is one of the biggest challenges that we face as designers. As more and more companies invest more and more in design organizations, we also have a monumental responsibility to demonstrate what that investment is bringing back to the organization. So that's why that's important for portfolios in the design team as well. Really demonstrating an understanding of the business opportunity and how, again, regardless of what space within design uh, they're they're in, that they're connecting that to the business value. And then, of course, I want to see how they structure presentations and how they lead and um, facilitate through that dialogue as well. Talking about design will be a big part of their daily life, especially in early design maturity organizations. You have to be able to talk about design and the rationale can't be like, well, I thought it looked good, right? Right. right. Um, And so those are three of the main elements that I look for. So what you just described was great for designers that have had professional career and professional experiences working in a business environment. So for those students that are coming out of university and that really haven't really had that opportunity, what advice might you have for them to um, strengthen their portfolios in regards to that subject? Incredibly important conversation. And I can't emphasize enough the, the power of design talent who are taking their first steps into a design career, whether that's out of university or, you know, retraining after decades in another role, which we see a lot of as well. This question took me back, you know, to my first steps out of of university, trying to secure those first jobs and not having that experience. So like vivid memories popped into my mind of sitting in those interview rooms. There's a lot of resources now that exist that I think are super powerful. Accelerator programs, several companies are introducing accelerator programs where folks can join in an organization with specific focus on um, further rounding out those capabilities. I would recommend folks who are taking their first step in a design career to try to find those opportunities if they're in your area. There are resources at our fingertips online as well that have framed up business challenges in a hypothetical way that you could invest a, a, a small amount of hours in and designing a solution for and be upfront about that. Of course, anyone hiring design talent needs to have the understanding that not everyone's going to come with one, two, three years of experience. So don't shy away from the fact that you're taking your first steps in a design career and you haven't had that opportunity yet, but be really clear with your thinking and how you would approach that. Even the most senior designers and senior leaders could have the most impressive business results tied to a design challenge. But if the thinking uh, isn't there behind that, which you can start to scratch at, then you know that's not successful either. Right, right. I'm just kind of curious your perspective on sample projects. And and that's something that we do require at Visual Logic. And I think there's some perspectives on that as as to whether that's fair or not to a candidate. The sample project that we put out there, we say, should take three to four hours. And it's the category is designing around trust. Some people spend more time than that. And then that's, you know, by their choice. And, and certainly that's taking the initiative and being proactive as what you had mentioned earlier. But it is a requirement for us because I'm very sensitive to people's portfolios that if they can't show what they have most recently worked on, I, 
Um, I completely understand that. And so this is providing a space to, to say, okay, but here's a, a sample assignment that you could pick up and, and show us an example of um, what your creative outputs are, how that maps back to strategy, and then provide an opportunity to, to see your presentation skills. Just curious to see your perspectives on sample projects and, and if you employ that in, in your process. Hotly debated topic yeah, in the right. field of UX and design, right? As a matter of policy, no, we do not require sample projects. But this is a much more nuanced topic than saying yes or no. I have done many sample projects um, in my career, and there are applicable places for them to be done. And so I think that over saying yes or no, flexibility is key. So for folks who have worked in industries or spaces that their work is totally confidential and they wouldn't be able to share anything. I actually feel more uncomfortable if they do share that work. Like I respect much more the fact that they say, you know what, I actually don't have anything um, to share. So in those situations, then of course we would come up with something that would um, enable them to meet the requirement of having a portfolio if they aren't able to share the work. But I don't want anyone to share confidential work from a competitor or non-competitor from whatever company they're applying at. Um, It is vitally important that in the design profession, in any profession, that we respect the the confidentiality of those agreements that we've made with the company. I think the basic ground rules for if you do request or require a sample project is that it is so far removed from the space in which your company operates Mm. that there can't be any perception that we would then take that work and capitalize on it. In an ideal world, if I were requiring sample projects, I would also compensate folks for that time, whether that's an hour or four hours as well. The role in which you're hiring requires um, some nuance here as well. So if if you have an ad for um, junior or entry level or folks who are taking their first step in design, that's where a sample project would be more applicable and might actually be ultimately better for the candidate as well. I do appreciate the way that you talked about that and compensating people for their time. That's really good to be thinking about their time in that way. Switching gears a little bit, I um, I just from person to person as I'm listening to you talk about the team that you've built and the and the team that you've surrounded yourself with, I'm just really proud of the work that you're doing and that the you know it's it's hard work that you're doing. I just want to acknowledge that and I just have a lot of pride in the, you know just having that opportunity to work together 15 years ago and just to, to see where you've gone with your career and, and the things that you're talking about really blow my mind it's difficult to build these big teams and and to see them through to success so I think that's amazing what you're doing thank you for that it's very challenging rewarding work for sure I'm super grateful for the time together as well and super grateful for the foundation that you and your perspectives on design and business provided me uh, as a a significant leapfrog launchpad (laughs) for my career those many years ago. So thank you, Andy. I really appreciate that. Yeah. One of the things that I also, as I'm watching you build your incredible team is I'm always amazed at um, the number of people that have been introduced to your team, but also just the diverse backgrounds that they come from. And in building a worldwide group, like you mentioned, with the different offices that you have, I'm very curious about the importance of these different perspectives and different backgrounds from a diversification standpoint. And specifically, 
how does that map to organizational goals and also just uh, to the product goals and things like that from from your perspective? I'm, I'd love to dig into your intentionality around building diverse groups. Diversity and inclusion equals innovation. When you marry that with IKEA's vision, which is to create a better everyday life for the many people, we can't create that better everyday life for the many people unless our teams reflect the many people. We had a, a, a rare and amazing opportunity to build a team of several hundred designers from scratch. And it was a requirement that we bring folks in from many different perspectives of, of diversity. We have folks from dozens and dozens of different countries around the world. We have diversity in terms of um, age, folks who are taking their first steps in their career to folks that you are seasoned people at, all, at multiple levels who are 20, 25, 30 years in the industry. Another aspect of diversity, which I think is really important in the UX space, especially because more specialized training or certification programs or, or university degrees, it, it, it's more recent. We have so many different folks from so many different backgrounds, electrical engineers, architects, lawyers, marketers, myself, a graphic designer, um, teachers. When hiring designers, whether that's a university degree or certification or no formal training at all, my perspective is that as long as the candidate can demonstrate experience commensurate with the, the position that they're applying for, what they have a degree in, what they don't have a degree in, what certification they hold, where said degree or certification might come from has very little bearing. Um, it's not something that I look at when I receive CVs or portfolios. I purposely don't look at that section mm. because I want to see the thinking behind how they're approaching design and how they're approaching design within business. I mean, we have just a huge diversity of folks who um, have stumbled their way into UX or experience design. Um, and bringing those different perspectives is incredibly important as well. When your company operates in over 30 markets around the world, and we have the very important task of creating what arguably the most important space in someone's life, their home, we need to make sure that the teams that are creating those experiences and delivering those experiences represent the many people. I admire that so much because um, you have been intentional to bring together a group of um, individuals from a wide diverse backgrounds that um, I can just imagine the rich dialogues that you have when it comes to solving design problems for your customers because of all of these great lenses and perspectives that they provide to you and to the, to the mission of solving problems in this way. I think that's great, that's amazing. Another important part of diversity inclusion is the inclusive design, equity, and accessibility team that we're building within the experience design team. So we're hiring people with specialized expertise in inclusive design strategy, inclusive design research, um, accessibility design. We have a moral and ethical responsibility as a design community to ensure that the experiences that we are creating and delivering for companies reach many more of the many people. And in building this team from scratch, the inclusive design equity and accessibility team will provide the foundations for the rest of the design team, but the rest of the company as well to ensure that we are upskilling and that we are delivering experiences to meet many more of the many people around the world. 
this has been an amazing conversation and I could spend hours talking with you about your experiences and the incredible work that you're doing at Ikea and building this world-class UX team. And I think it's amazing. And I'm just so appreciative of this time with you and the perspectives that you've shared and, and for being on our Humans First podcast. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much, Andy. It was a really uh, amazing dialogue. Really grateful to be on the podcast as well and share perspectives and share a little bit of the journey that we've been on here at IKEA in building this experience design team from scratch. It is not an easy endeavor for anyone in any any size of an organization to bring design into an organization and increase design maturity. So the more that we can share this knowledge as a design community, the better we will all be. So thank you so much for facilitating the dialogue and thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Humans First. This podcast is supported by Visual Logic, a full-service product and strategy design agency that specializes in user experience and the building of design teams. To learn more about Visual Logic and view our human-centric solutions, visit our website at www.visuallogicux.com.